0: Good morning. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Genesis. It's chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and that's on page 1 in the Bibles that we provide. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And the gospel selection today is Matthew 19, verses 3 through 15, and that's on page 824. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. The Gospel of Christ.
1: We return after a a month-and-a-half hiatus to our study of Ephesians. Uh, We are at the 22nd verse of chapter 5 of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And if you're using our Bibles, you'll find this on page 978. Let me just say, before I read a word about the text as we have it in front of us, Uh, it's important for us to remember when reading and studying the Bible that it wasn't until the Middle Ages that verses and chapter divisions were put in the Bible. Uh, In the Middle Ages, all classical texts, Plato, Aristotle, uh, the Bible, all ancient texts were versified, put in chapters and verses to make it easier to find things and to study them. But sometimes these divisions were not well placed and we exacerbate it by putting headings as we have here. You'll see down at the beginning of the section we're going to read, wives and husbands. But the problem is that is dividing it from its theme. And we will not understand the verses that we're going to read unless we understand the matter of contexts. And so first of all, the literary context, Paul ended what we looked at a month and a half ago, verses 15 through 21, He was talking about the life of wisdom, a life lived by the Spirit of God, according to the Word of God, for the glory of God, and he ended by saying, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now he gives three illustrations of what that looked like in his world, and that's going to be crucial to understanding what we're going to be doing this morning. So, first of all, these are three illustrations Paul's saying, what does it look like in the world in which he lived and into which he was writing? What might it look like in the key relationships of life to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? And so he addresses husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, marriage, family, work. Still, for those of us who are married and have kids, the three key relationships of life, where we're to walk out the gospel. So with that in mind, realize he's now giving three illustrations. And again, it's absurd that chapter six begins with children and parents. That's all part of this section. Chapter six should not begin until verse 10, where he turns to a new subject about putting on the armor of God. So don't be put off by divisions that weren't part of the original scriptures. We begin reading with verse 22. He has said, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, and if you look at the footnote, the literal translation is slaves, so I'm going to read it that way. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The word of the Lord. Father, I pray that you will open our hearts and minds to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm convinced that this is one of the most misunderstood passages in all Scripture. And that deeply Bible-loving, Christ-loving people who long to understand what it means to relate rightly within marriage and family and work may come to this, and because of a whole tradition of misunderstanding, end up reading this completely differently than Paul intended it even in his age. And further, I hope that when you leave, you'll understand why I would contend that if Paul were writing this same truth to 21st century United States would not write it the way that he's written here. The Bible is written in its context. There's an old saying that I was taught first when I studied literature, then when I studied philosophy, and when I studied, finally, theology. And the rule of interpretation is this. It is crucial. Text without context is pretext. In fact, uh, Don Carson, the popular New Testament reader, uh, New Testament teacher, uh, has added to that and has said, text without context is pretext leading to a proof text. Now, what's a proof text? A proof text is when we take a verse from Scripture and say, see, this is what Paul says. How can you hold that view? Without its context, you have no idea what it means. The problem with the Bible being divided into verses is that we think these are little chunks of truth rather than realizing we cannot understand them except in their context. What do I mean? Let me step away from this for a moment because some of you may be feeling something rise within you. Um, let me give something that's, that's a classic historic misunderstanding within the church. I may be the first to have discovered, no, that's but but, um, it's so clear once you see it. There has been long teaching, beautiful hymns written, some of my very favorites, and books of theology written on the Father turning his face away from Jesus on the cross. The idea that in some deep and mysterious way, God who is one, unchangeable, unchanging, nevertheless experienced a shattering. Why do we know that? Because from the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so, one of my favorite passion hymns says, the Father turned his face away. And if you said, I don't think the Father turned his face away from the Son, someone would say, Psalm 22, Jesus quoted the first verse, Psalm 1, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? What can be plainer than that? Don't you believe the Bible? As I've said to you before, whenever Jesus or Paul or anyone quotes the scripture, you have to treat that as a link on a computer where you hit the link and it takes you to a passage. Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was he doing? He was linking everyone there to what was going on in his own experience. And that was Psalm 22, not just Psalm 22 verse one. In 22 verse one, David is in trouble and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he has this sense of being abandoned by God. And Jesus is confessing, here I am, hanging here, bearing the sin of the world, feeling abandoned by my Father. But if you read Psalm 22, David goes on and realizes God hasn't turned away from him at all. And toward the end of the psalm, he goes, You who fear the Lord, rejoice, for he has not turned his face away from his beloved one, but has heard his cry. That's, Jesus was making the exact opposite point from the one that we historically take. What he was saying is, even in this moment of what seems like dereliction and abandonment, I remember that though I feel abandoned by my Father, I have not been. Okay? Text without context is pretext. Now, what does that have to do with this? Paul was writing to a world that was so different from ours that if we simply pick up the Bible and read it as though Paul were writing to us in our situation, we will misunderstand in these practical sections where he applies human relationships. We will massively misunderstand. And in order to try to prove this to you this morning, I think it's best that we take these in reverse order. Because we are at such a distance that if we start with husbands and wives— it'll be hard to get there until the end, whereas if we start with the third term, the workplace, it hopefully will begin to come clear. Note one other thing. Paul takes the people whom he addresses in the opposite order that we would expect him to do. Paul begins in each of these cases, in working relationships, in parent-child relationships, in husband and wife relationships, not by addressing the person in power, as you would think he would do. He doesn't start that way. He begins by addressing the person who in his culture was utterly powerless, and I want to explain why. So take his his word to slaves and masters. When he talks about the workplace, he's talking totally different. Who would write to a group of Christian business people here and say, you obey your boss with fear and trembling. I mean, I, don't want my ch- I want my children to be good, strong workers and all the rest. But I don't want them going to work in fear and trembling as though they were slaves. I want them to stand up and find their work and, and, yes, salute, be respectful. But he's writing to slaves. And in the ancient world, slaves had no right. No right of appeal. They were property. People often you know, think Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, the great uh, ancient writers were enlightened people. Well, that may have been enlightened for their age, but it's horrifying when you read what they wrote. You look sometime, if you're inclined, at Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, his great work on ethics. Look at his passage on justice. Now, this stood even in the teachings of the church. People like Thomas Aquinas, you know, looked to Aristotle to give them wisdom in how to understand scriptures and how to do what's just. What did Aristotle say when he wrote about justice? He said, justice does not apply to slaves or children or wives because they are your property. Justice applies between men. That's the ancient world into which He wrote this letter. And if we don't know that and hear it this way, we're not going to even understand what he is doing and how radically subversive to that culture it was. What he's doing is he's first saying, everyone calm down. He has a room full mostly of masters. And so he says, I want to teach on what it looks like for everyone to submit to each other. So how am I going to start this? So when he addresses the workplace, he says, Slaves, obey your masters. Obey them with fear and trembling. The masters are all going, Good. Yeah, we can take this. We can handle this. This is good advice. Hope our slaves are listening. Christian slaves. But then Paul speaks a word of encouragement. He says, Don't do it to please men. Do it to please the Lord. And realize that Your masters are servants as well. You're God's cherished children. Paul has been teaching slaves that they are now free in Christ, that they are cherished, that they are made in God's image and likeness and therefore have worth and value. But that message has not yet worked its way through. And so he says, don't walk in and think that you can turn the whole social order upside down. So obey your masters with fear and trembling, but do it for the Lord. Live in such a way that for your master, your life will be a testimony because you're the best slave you can be. You're doing the best work you can do. You're doing it for the Lord and you are honoring the Lord's name. And then he says something that you will not find any parallel to in the ancient world. He says, masters, stop being bad to your slave. Stop it. Did you read that? I'm not making it up. Verse 9 of chapter 6 Masters, do the same to them. In other words, as they treat you, you treat them. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there's no partiality with him. Do you see what he's done? The whole ancient world said there is a difference. People are not the same. These people do not have worth and value. They are your property. And Paul says, from God's perspective, there's no difference. And you masters had better treat them the way that you want your master in heaven to treat you. You want to receive grace and compassion and mercy and love. That's how you'd better start treating your slaves. Tragically, It took 1,800 years for this message to finally work its way through as good leaven and salt and light and turn slavery upside down. And it was Christian people led by Wilberforce who did it, starting in England. And it was because they finally got it. Whereas my godly great-grandfather Wood, who was a Presbyterian pastor in Statesville, North Carolina, own slaves. And he had all the proof texts, all the Bible verses. The Bible nowhere ever once condemned slavery. Why? Because it was the only world that anyone had ever known. It was their world. This was it. They could not conceive a world without slaves. But Paul writes into that world, sowing the seeds that would end up destroying the whole structure of slavery. Thank God. It just took too long. Okay, parents and children. We won't understand what he's doing here. Why in the world would he address children first? You speak first to the parents, but he doesn't. Once again, he starts with the powerless. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. What's he doing? He's once again calming the parents down. He's been telling children, you have worth and value. Doesn't everyone believe that? No. The ancient world didn't. In Rome, remember, they're part of the Roman Empire. He's writing to Ephesus. Roman law had the rule of patria potestas. Patria, father, potestas, rule, potentate. By patria potestas law, the father had the right of life and death over his children. He could sell them as slaves, he could prostitute his daughters, which many Romans did for money. In fact, it was written of this era that in Rome, a Roman man might go to a house of prostitution and not even realize that he'd slept with one of his daughters. That was the state of the relationship between parents and children. Your children were your property until the time that a son became old enough to have his family and step out. But the daughter had no hope. That was always her state, as we'll see in a minute. And we have plenty of accounts of people abandoning their children, selling their children, kicking their children to death. They were property. And, no, and the father owned every bit of it. So, of course, children obey your parents. <laughs> That's the law. But Paul gives them better motivation. He says, because it's right. It's right for children to obey your parents. Don't do it now that you're a child of God. Don't do it because you're terrified of the father potentate who might otherwise beat you or sell you or kill you. Do it because it's right and it's pleasing to the Lord. In fact, remember, honor your father and your mother, the first commandment with a promise that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you." So Paul is speaking to those that are powerless, but he's giving them positive reason for doing it, just as he did with slaves. Slaves, do it as to the Lord, do it as a witness. Child, do it because it's right, do it because it pleases the Lord, do it as a witness to your family. And then now note, this is important. He has said to the children, obey not just your fathers, obey your parents. And he has said, quoting from the law of God, honor your father and your mother. But then he turns and he doesn't address mothers because they didn't have patria potestas. There was no uh, matria (laughs) potestas. It was patria potestas. So he now says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Again, there's nothing comparable to that. Why? Why, do I, why should I worry about my children's feelings? I own them. They're here for my good pleasure. Paul says, no, no. Don't exasperate your children. And of course, in the larger context, when they read this letter, we break it down into pieces and study it over, over a year. They just stood up in the church and read it. And what did they just heard Paul say in the prayer that he taught earlier in the letter? He said, we bow the knee before our Father from whom fatherhood derives its name, its meaning. In other words, you want to know what a father is supposed to be, you look at your heavenly Father. What is your heavenly Father like? Compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. If you want to be a father, that's what you're to be like. Because you too are a child, and so you too... (laughs) like your child, are to act in a way that will please and delight your heavenly Father. Now he turns to husband. Actually, he starts with it because they knew what was going on. We come to it now because we start getting our backs up because of years of misunderstanding. He begins verse 21 by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. And every woman in the room would have, it, she probably would have just gone right past her. She'd never known anything else in her life. In fact, probably they were sitting in the early churches in the synagogue with the women on one side, the men on the other. The women are all over here, the letters being read. Wives well, submit to your husbands. Of course, they own us. Because just as the Roman law gave the father patria potestas in his home, the father, the husband, had the law of manus, M A N U S which made his wife his property. He owned his wife. Women had no value in the ancient world. And if we don't get that, we don't know how to read the Bible. Here's an example. The eloquent Roman orator Cato wrote this. This was the world into which Paul was writing. Cato wrote, our fathers have willed that women should be in the power of their fathers, of their brothers, of their husbands. Remember all of the laws by which our fathers have bound down the liberty of women, by which they have bent them to the power of men. You may say, why? Very telling. As soon as they are our equals, they become our superiors. Any married man knows exactly what he was talking about. (laughs) In other words, he is reminding the Romans that women must be kept down. You were born belonging to your father. He could do with you as he chose. He could sell you as a slave. He could turn you into a prostitute. He could make you simply serve him in the home and because you were a good cook and he didn't want to lose you, so he'd never let you marry. I mean, women had no freedom. Now, you may be thinking, yes, but Paul was also a Jewish rabbi, and there's the Jewish context. There is the Jewish context. Now, brothers and sisters, don't get mad at the messenger. I'm just reporting what the Bible teaches. An Israelite man could divorce his wife for any reason, simply by giving her a bill of divorce. An Israelite woman could not divorce her husband for any reason, including abuse. She had no court of appeal to go to. She belonged to him. In fact, that's what's so... Sadly funny about that gospel lesson. The Pharisees go to Jesus and say, can a a man divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus says, no. Well, Moses told us we could just give our wife a bill of divorce, and that was it. And he said, Moses did that because of your hardness of heart. That was not God's will. From the beginning, he made it that a man and wife were to be together and only infidelity was to break that. Paul adds one other thing in one of his letters where he says, willful desertion as well. But what's the disciples' response? When they hear that you can't divorce your wife for any reason, it's not the Pharisees now, but Jesus' disciples who say, whoa, who'd want to get married then? (laughs) Did you notice that? It's like they're going, you mean if we get married, we got to stay with her and be faithful to her for life? Who wants to do that? That's the disciples. That's the world into which Paul was writing this letter. Women had no value. They were property. And you could take them or get rid of them. And so Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Go, of course. It's very telling that he never calls on women to love their husbands. That would be a bit too much of a stretch in that setting. He says, submit to them. And then at the end, he says, respect them. But then he begins to sow the seeds that will turn all of this upside down. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife. You can see all the guys on this side going, Amen, brother, preaching. As Christ is the head of the church. Okay. Then he says, Husbands, love your wives. Whoa. There's nothing like that in 1 Samuel. We love my property? What? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order that he might present her to the Lord in all of her beauty as God intended her to be. In other words, he is linking us to all of Jesus' teaching on what it means to be an authority. I regularly have Christian men say to me, I really want to be the head of my house the way the Bible says I'm to be. The problem is Jesus has told us what that means. Paul began to point to it in Philippians 2 when he said, he who was in the form of God did not count equality with God something to grasp, but emptied himself, took the form of a servant, humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus, that last night before the cross, John chapter 13, took off his rabbinical robes, put a towel around his waist, started to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter said, no, you'll never wash my feet. Why? Because that was the one thing that was considered so degrading that you could not make a Jewish slave do it. If you wanted your feet washed, it had to be a Gentile slave because to a Jew, to touch another person's feet was considered the utter indignity. And Jesus does the lowest, most contemptible job, then puts back on his robes and says, do you understand what this was about? You call me Lord and Master, and I am. And this is what it looks like in my kingdom. It's not being boss. It's not being the guy in charge whose family does what he says. It is the guy who lays down his rights and prerogatives and does the job that no one else wants to do and serves as an example of what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means. And who is looking to his wife and saying, not how can I keep her in her place submissive to me, but is rather saying, how can I lift her up and see this beautiful, bright, gifted woman become everything that God created and redeemed her to be? Paul is writing that into a situation where they were nothing but slaves. And yet he's saying all of his advice is to men. He says, You should love your. Here, are these guys, his own disciples, are saying, Who wants to get married if you're stuck with her? And Paul is saying, you should love your wife as much as you love yourself. Love her the way you love your own body. No one hates his own body. The way you take care of yourself and share, that's how much you should love your wife. That's what headship is in the family of God. This is a mutual submission. It is not the guys in charge. Boy, there's a bunch of Christians. That looks good. The guys are in charge. Brothers, if you're doing that, you are denying the gospel of Christ. The freedom of women in our day came about because Christian people finally said, this is not right. The freedom of slaves came about because Christian people finally got it, and Wilberforce raised them up. And thank God my family lost its goods and were defeated and had to come under a biblical regime. But they had all the proof texts. My godly great-grandfather had the whole Bible to prove that it was okay for him to have slaves as long as he was good to them. Because text without context is pretext and leads to proof text. You and I have the great privilege of living today in a world that has been turned upside down by the gospel. 2,000 years of Christian world and life view in Europe and in America, working its way out. The tragedy is that now so many leaders who cherish justice and mercy and love, all things that had no place in the ancient world until Christ came, and that have no place in atheistic countries like the old Soviet Union under Stalin, or China under Mao, or Cambodia under Pol Pot, or North Korea under the present. Guy who buys his clothes at Chico's. Who can be afraid of a guy who buys his clothes at Chico's for sake, I I don't know about that. It just looks like it. He looks like, you know. I, I mean, but people who call for it say, liberate the world from violence by having atheism, atheistic... Dawkins and the rest just don't even look at history, recent history. All the good things in the world that we value and cherish are because we're still living off the fumes of Christian culture. And it was Christ who came into the world and set people free. And it breaks my heart when I see a sharp young couple who are living together well, having divided up things according to each person's gifts and abilities and are Then come to Christ and suddenly come under fundamentalist teaching and come in and go, oh my goodness, this is going to be hard. How do we do this? I guess I'm supposed to be in charge of everything because Paul said, my wife's supposed to be submitting to me and I'm supposed to be head like the Lord. He wasn't talking about the Lord enthroned in glory. He was talking about the Lord in his incarnation when he came and said to his disciples as they were arguing over which one was in charge, Jesus said the rulers of the Gentiles do that not to be that way with you, but the one who serves is the one who leads. As the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." What am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is that Paul was writing into a cruel ancient world where women and children and slaves had no rights, and he is speaking words into that culture that eventually turned it upside down. Calling first, yes, slaves, children, women, play your role, but do it for the Lord. But now, husbands, you lay down your life for your wife. That's what it means to lead. Parent, raise those children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Masters, realize that you're a slave of a master in heaven. <coughs> You want him to treat you as a beloved person, you better start treating your slaves that way. Do you see how he was turning it all upside down? Very subtly by first addressing the weaker member, but then sowing the seeds. And they've borne fruit. Brothers and sisters, why would we go back? Why would we read the Bible in such a way that we think that what God wills is for us to recreate ancient societies of massive oppression and injustice? To read that is to read the Bible as law and not as gospel, and it is, I think, to completely misunderstand the call of the one who said, I have come among you not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Would you stand?